We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, and wherever you find your podcasts. Before setting off on a journey to a more fulfilling or meaningful life, it's important to have clear intentions and well-formed goals. Often it is at this vital first step that many people set themselves up for failure. So I have invited licensed therapist, wellness coach and mental health counsellor Erin Vandermore, who is a regular listener to this podcast, to discuss how to set intentions and make certain your actions align with them. She's also the author of Unlock Your Limitless Potential, the science-backed guide to mastering your mind, body and life. So what in your childhood set you off on this journey of personal growth and change, do you think? Mm, that's a good question. Probably growing up on the south side of Chicago in a very Catholic area in the late 80s, early 90s, asking lots of questions and pretty much being told just because, because they said so, because it's written and being told to stop there. And that is never the way I have operated. I like conversations. I like understanding where people are coming from. I like digging to those roots and getting deeper. So even at a young age, when people would kind of put up that stop sign, that would just intrigue me and make me want to learn even more. So your parents were not curious people, and yet they had a curious child. You must have been a bit of a nightmare for them. My mother is extremely curious. She's a professor of anatomy and physiology and biology. It's my father's side that is all Catholics and didn't ask a whole bunch of questions. But as my parents have gotten older, they definitely have started to pursue what their truth is and how that looks different. And so we've been able to change and grow together as a family. Oh, that sounds lovely. What what have your parents discovered on their journey? Well, my father always likes to joke that he raised three children Catholic who are now agnostic or atheist. So he's learning that love comes in many different ways. Love shows up with your children in many different forms. And regardless of what their spiritual beliefs are, it doesn't mean we can't have meaningful, interesting conversations. And my mother being a scientist is always wanting to have those deeper conversations. So what we're talking about is change, really, isn't it? How comfortable are you with change? I love it, but I'm never comfortable in it, which is good, because if you're comfortable, you won't change. Because you've moved around America quite a bit. Am I right about that? I've lived all throughout the suburbs, Chicago proper, and then I lived in D.C. and Maryland went back to Chicago for a little bit, and now I'm in North Carolina. We'll see where I end up next. And do you learn everything from every move? Oh, absolutely. It forces me to have to be put into a different environment, 
where my views of what normal are or how things operate are always challenged because depending on where you are, normal is always changing, right? So what I considered a normal interaction in Chicago is very different than what it is in D.C. or here in the South. So what's the difference between an interaction in Chicago and one in the Deep South? Well, in Chicago, when we say, how are you doing, it's more of like a high and we move on. In the South, they actually want to know. And so they stop and want to have the conversation, which always kind of throws me because I'm always wanting to keep moving, keep going. And down here, not so much. So the big problem with trying to change your life is you have to leave your comfort zone of things that work. So how do we start getting ready to leave our comfort zone? You have to recognize that we are going to be uncomfortable and that it's okay to be uncomfortable. Not waiting for you to be okay to to change, not waiting to feel all right around it. You're never going to be okay with being uncomfortable. You're never going to feel good. It's like waiting for a roller coaster. You go on it and it's still scary. You don't wait till you're not scared. Because ultimately, we in general don't ask ourselves questions like how happy we are until we're actually really quite miserable. We actually change because we have to change. And if we don't, change gets forced upon us. Absolutely. I would prefer if, though, we could recognize that and start working on making the meaningful change that we want before we reach that moment of just, I don't know, explosion or moment of extremes. I would rather take ownership and check in with myself every couple months, kind of like going to the dentist. You just go in for a checkup. Mental health should be the same. You go in for a regular checkup and you ask yourself those questions so that you can catch it before you're miserable. That's an interesting thought. I mean, possibly being a therapist, all I see is people who've crashed the car, so to speak, and are miserable in some shape or form coming to see me. It's very seldom people say, oh, we've just turned up here for a little bit of a mental health checkup. We don't think there's anything wrong, but let's have a little chat. I mean, do you actually get people like that? Maybe because you're more a wellness coach, you might get more of that. So I'm also a mental health therapist, and I actually specialize in EMDR, which is a type of trauma-based therapy. So I generally get a good percentage, about 80% of my clients are in crisis, have experienced a trauma, and are at some of the lowest spots in their lives. But because I have this secondary business of coaching, I have been able to have about 10 to 20% of my clients come for the check-in, especially since I speak about the importance of coming in for a check-in, being preventative care. So what is your reaction when someone says you need to set your intentions? Oh, I get excited. That's a really good conversation because that means the person is really taking a moment to pause, to breathe, to be in the moment and think about, what it is they want to achieve either for that moment, that day, the conversation. It lets me know that they're in a a really good frame of um, mind there. Because I'm going to give you a confession. I'm 64 and I'm currently doing a course at the moment. And we had to set our intentions. And 
in 64 years, I have never sat down and set a whole set of intentions. And I felt all sorts of um, strange feelings. So I will share them with you. As I started to do it, I had to put them into categories of what I want to have, what I want to do, and what I want to be. So there were three categories to have, to do, and to be. And I was a bit worried I might come across as greedy if I was thinking about all the things I wanted to have. I was worried that I'd be setting myself up for failure. And I was wondering what will other people think? So I had quite a lot of resistance to setting intentions. Am I unusual? No, not at all. It's unfortunate a lot of people will, especially when thinking about what's better for themselves, assume that that must mean that they're selfish or that they're not thinking of others instead of the view of, if I'm at my best self, then I can show up for other people at a higher level. And a lot of people will think about intentions and go to the negative. When really, it's important to approach it from a positive standpoint of, you know, how do I want to proceed? Nobody would go into a baseball game without a plan of action. Why should we with life? So how would somebody come up with negative intentions? Give me some example of negative intentions. Oh, phrases like, I won't do this, or I'm going to be more of this, which is that frame of reference telling yourself that you're not. And that's never a good message to give to yourself. So when was the first time you actually set some intentions yourself? Take me right back. How did you feel when you actually had to set some intentions? I actually did that in one of my master's level classes back in Chicago. I had a professor who was very much in that beginning movement of mindfulness. And I was resistant to it at first, too. I thought it was a little hokey. I wasn't super comfortable with it. I was very much more of like the scientific approach. And I had to take a step back and pause and ask myself, well, why am I resisting it? Is it good that I feel uncomfortable? Because that means it's a moment for me to learn something new. And how can I approach this instead with curiosity? So how do we start to set some intentions? Well, I think it's always good to think about What is it that you simply want your day to look like? Just start small. How would you like to be able to be in the day, in the moment? Do you want to be more present? Are you trying to approach things lighter, not as heavy, not as serious? What are some ways to describe yourself showing up today that feels good to you? Well, I mean, I set an intention that I was going to show up with love. And about half an hour later, my partner and I were having a really nasty, vicious argument. Oh, talk about self-sabotage. Yeah, it didn't. It's easy to set the intention, but following Mm -hmm. it through is harder. We'll we'll come on to that in a moment. So you, you will start off sometimes with smaller, what do I want in the moment? Yep. What other categories might you set for people? I would say try and get more specific because showing up with love is wonderful, but how? How does that look? Is it the way you present yourself? Is it the way you're going to think about interactions? Is it the phrasing and the words you're using? What are you doing to help yourself be successful with that intention? 
And the more specific we are, and the more we're able to answer the question of how, the more successful we'll be. So if my intention is to approach today working on like my patients, which is something I'm always working on, having two kids and a wife with ADHD who just forgets everything. Patience is something that I need to work on, but I also know it can be a trigger for myself. So I want to be very specific. So maybe I work on patients with one person or one situation I know that may be coming up and I kind of like role play it in my mind so that I can think about different ways to approach it. So I'm prepared and it feels more possible. So give me that explanation of how you might role play being more patient with, say, one of your children in your mind. Okay. So my daughter, I would think about, I know that she's going to text me later or call me later today. She's probably going to ask me for something that I may not want to say yes to. And I know I'm going to have a reaction where I'm going to want to just say no, or I'm going to want to argue back because she's at that teenage age where she's pushing boundaries. So I'm going to instead think about how can I take a break, put the phone down, pause, kind of envision myself being able to just be more present and curious instead of just reactive. So I kind of like think about different things I can say, like, let me think about that. I'll get back to you in 10 minutes because I know I'm just going to react quick with a no and I don't want to do that. So how can I build in the pause that I know that works for me? Does that help? That helps a huge amount. I'm beginning to see how role playing it in your mind would work and it seems really helpful. So we've got intentions that are in the moment that are for the day. Do we want to have longer intentions than just for the day? I think it depends on the individual. I don't think it's a bad idea. But if you're not able to put intentions into practice, into action for your day, then it's much harder than to conceptualize the idea of an intention for the month or the year. So I always say, start small. Let's figure out how do you get you to feel successful. So if you can do an intention for a day, you can do that a couple of days, then start a week and then maybe expand. But don't expand until you've been successful and it feels more of a pattern, more of a habit. So what do you think of the plan that I was given? I had to separate them into to have, to be, and to do. Is that helpful or do you think, I mean, I, had to, I think I had to come up with 30 intentions I mean, I had quite a bit of time to do it, but it seemed like a lot of, well, actually they're calling them goals, but are goals and intentions the same thing? I think it depends on how you approach it. I could certainly argue either way. I think an intention, though, is more meaningful to the individual, more personal. And when things are more personal, we're more likely to be able to put them into action. So... Is it a good idea to separate them into different parts of your life, or are we trying to do this across all parts of our life? So are we trying to do it at home and work, or are we just saying, well, actually, my intentions for work are this, and my intentions for home are that? You know, I think it very much, again, depends on the individual and whether or not one needs more attention than the other. 
I think this is a moment for inflection for you to stop and ask yourself those questions. Do I need to put any more time and effort into work? Do I need to put more time into family? Do I need to put more time into myself? Where am I lacking when it comes to my attention and effort and energy? And you have dyslexia and ADHD. How does that impact you when it comes to making intentions? Well, with the ADHD, which wasn't diagnosed until I was much older because growing up in the late 80s, 90s, I was just told I was ditzy or space cadet when I would zone out and I didn't realize it was ADHD, which would have been much helpful growing up. But oh, well, I know now. With intentions, I always leave myself some wiggle room because I know I may have moments where I'm not able to attend, where I may have 20 different thoughts in my head going at once. And so I don't want to use an intention as a way to put myself down or punish myself. I want to make sure that I leave some flexibility in there where I can still have those human moments with my dyslexia is very much being patient with myself, recognizing that I may have moments where I'm having a conversation and it doesn't quite come out the way I would like it to. But that's taken many years of being able to learn how to recognize that dyslexia for me is a strength and not a weakness. Tell me more about that. So being dyslexic, I am always having to think about how to answer questions. What's the right phrasing? Because sometimes in my head, I'll have like a $1,000 word, but only a $10 word is able to come out for whatever reason. There's that disconnect. And that, though, has made me have a better understanding of other people in situations where they're not able to express, where they feel uncomfortable, where they're doubting themselves. So it's really helped me to build up a better understanding of empathy, being able to take that moment and be observant of how other people may be struggling in ways that aren't obvious from the outside. So it seems to me that when you're setting intentions, you have to be quite kind to yourself because I can see how, you know, I can set the intention to be full of love and then I fail and I beat myself up. And somehow I don't think that's a very good recipe. No, and it's just a way to self-sabotage yourself. Absolutely. You, you're you giving yourself this negative message of, oh, I can't do it. See, I failed. It's not worth it. I'm not capable. Like all these negative thoughts that you're feeding that subconscious That is not what an intention is supposed to be. And so you really do need to take some time to think about how you want to show up with the intention, the impact it can have on you, and be able to role play it through because then you can catch those moments of negativity of, oh, I may use this as a way to put myself down. I may use this as a way to, you know, think this negative thought about myself not enough or whatever the situation is. Okay. So let's imagine that the internal thought is I'm too much. So, you know, I'm about to set an intention, but I know uh, that I'm probably going to beat myself up because I'm, you know, I'm being too much for somebody. How do I build that knowledge in when I'm beginning to set my intentions? 
Well, I would first recognize and write and maybe say out loud, talk it through, journal about the I'm too much, where that comes from, how it shows up, how your body feels. What are some of those warning signs that your body and brain help you to recognize that you're going to start feeling too much? And then with that frame of reference, how can we be kind to ourselves with our intentions where the too much won't be as triggered or it will force us to go, oh, I am not too much. I am enough. And so what are those intentions that will set you up for success? So if there's someone you interact with and you're always thinking I'm too much, well, then what is a positive intention with that specific person that will help you not to approach it in that situation? You know, I like specifics. When you make it too broad, you're, you leave so much wiggle room for you to be able to weaponize it. As in your example of showing up in love, I will show up with love. That's so broad, it leaves so much room for us to be able to kind of turn it and twist it and sabotage. So help me make it a bit more specific then. Okay. Uh, Is there a certain person, a certain subject that you feel that approaching it with love or the person or the subject would help you to approach it with a more positive, welcoming mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always good to do that with your partner so that you you don't have a, a preset idea, oh, they're going to do X, Y, Z. I think having preconceived ideas of how somebody's going to respond and making it a negative one is a bit of a recipe for disaster. So that's what I mean when I'm saying showing up with love. I'm sort of going to be open. I'm going to expect good intentions rather than bad intentions, I think is what I'm getting at. Okay. So you could set the intention of the next conversation that you have with your partner. You're going to take some deep breaths. You're really going to be present more in your body, not in your thoughts. So different ways to help yourself focus on what they're saying, what they're thinking, asking them questions so that you're not in your head. So you're really being intent with being there for them within love. So if they say something that normally would cause an argument, you could go, is this what you mean by it? Is this the intent? That curiosity piece of share more with me because I want to hear the love coming from the other person. And so I need to kind of like ask those questions, be really intent to find that love, to hear it, to pick up on it. How am I going to engage so that we have that loving, meaningful conversation? So maybe the idea might be less to show up with love, but to find the love in the responses of the other person. That would be maybe a little bit more targeted. Yes, because that other person loves you, but you come up with all these, oh, it's not going to go well, it's not going to do this, this is going to happen, all this negativity you blind yourself to the possibility of the other person showing up in love. You blind yourself to the possibility of you showing love for the other person. So how do you make certain that your actions align with your intentions? That's tricky because humans are very good at sabotaging themselves, which is why for me, I like to play it out in my mind 
I like to journal about it. I like to talk about it out loud if it's really important to me so that I can reinforce it for myself in many different ways, what my intention is and how it's so important for me and the person I'm interacting with to be in that moment so that I can recognize I might need to take that pause, take a step back and remind myself. Sometimes I let the other person know, you know, I'm working on A or B or C, you know, this is a struggle for me. Can you help remind me in nice, kind ways, right? Because I want to be successful. I'll tell the other person to help me be more successful. So getting a support network is important, I think I'm hearing you say. How do you build one? Well, I would start with, you know, your family, who you're close with. For me, I would tell my wife, I would tell my kids, hey, this is what I'm working on. This is why I might try and approach things differently, you know, especially my kiddos, because the moment I do anything different, they call it out in a heartbeat. And so I want them to know that I am intentionally doing whatever it is differently for the positive outcome. And then I ask them for creative ways of how they think they can help me. So any other ways of spotting self-sabotage beyond asking other people to spot it? We all have kind of like a tell, like in poker, where you can see somebody do something. And so your body is going to give you some type of a warning sign that you're starting down a path that you don't want to. For me, I've learned throughout the years that I'll start to feel kind of warm, kind of flushed. And that's a cue to me to stop whatever I'm doing and kind of take that look back, a different perspective and ask myself, okay, what's going on here? You know, what is the conversation? What is the feeling? What is the topics where I'm going to look back a day, a week from now and go, oh, I didn't want that. I messed that up. And so I've had to learn to really pay attention to my body. And so overheating, feeling flush is always a cue for me that something uncomfortable is going on. And I most likely am sabotaging myself. And so what are other sort of body signals that uh, you hear about quite often? Um, Sometimes people will get slight headaches or they'll get fidgety and they'll have to move around a lot. They'll sometimes get a little tongue tied. And it's just an awesome way that your body is trying to help you. It's an awesome way that your body is trying to give you a cue, a pause, a moment to step away. And you're just not always catching it though. So why do we self-sabotage? Because it doesn't really seem like a, a good plan. Well, I like to approach things from the idea of what the root is. And generally, when we're talking about roots, it's around childhood time. And so a lot of times when we start to self-sabotage, it's because it was a coping mechanism that we had when we were young that was helpful. For example, You know, you don't want to get too excited or happy because when you were younger, generally things didn't always work out well. And so you would just tell yourself automatically, let's not get happy about this. Don't get excited. And so you kind of like pull yourself down. And so you get a setting. It's kind of like a radiator setting. This setting's safe. But anytime I get happy above this setting, something always goes wonky 
and pulls me back down. So my subconscious now knows this is safe. And if I start to go above it, and I know that that's not safe, now I'm going to sabotage and pull myself down. So I'm in control. And so nobody's hurting me. I'm sabotaging, so I'm safe. So this coping mechanism, when I was little, to keep me emotionally safe, is now as an adult, is just maladaptive. It's self-sabotage because I don't need this level anymore. I can bump it up. I'm an adult. It's safer. I understand complex emotions and critical thinking, but my subconscious just doesn't know that. And I understand what you're saying, but I'm just wondering how I would turn that into action on a day-to-day basis. So I would journal. I'm huge on the idea of journaling, even though I suck at it, hate it, being dyslexic. Writing and words have never been my strong point. So for me, what I do is I actually talk to my phone and will email myself because that's what works best for me is verbal communication about those moments that I've seen. What are the themes? What have I caught? And then I also want to raise that bar so it's not getting triggered as much. And to raise the bar, you need to be in your body more, not in your head, overthinking which will then trigger the self-sabotage. I need to be in my senses. What am I hearing, feeling, seeing, smelling? Whatever can get me into my senses. And if I can just do a little bit of that every day of being in my body, that naturally will raise that bar because it's reinforcing to my body that I'm safe, that I'm secure, that I can raise the bar And every day I'm just reinforcing that I'm good, that I'm safe, that I'm secure. And so that's a little small action you can just take while drinking coffee. Take a moment and notice the taste of the coffee, the smell of the coffee. Just forcing yourself to be more in your body and less in your head. I always say, think of like the happiest things on earth, puppies, kittens, toddlers. They are not worried about what's going to happen next, which is anxiety. They don't care what happened two minutes ago, which is, you know, more like depression, worried about the past. They only care about what they can eat, what they can smell, what they can hear, what they can feel. They are so happy because they are just in their bodies, in their senses. And so self-sabotage is never going to get triggered when you're able to do that. So be more like a puppy. Yes. Well, that would be a good intention for the new year. I'm going to spend 2024 being more puppy. I love it. I think I could possibly drive people up the wall, but, you know, I'd be chewing things and... um... Well, but not all puppies chew and puppies cuddle and puppies are in the moment and they force you to be in the moment with them. So I think it's a lovely idea. So... If we are setting intentions, and I think that one of the things that you recommend as important is assess, adjust, and refocus from time to time. Why is that important? We as humans, especially as adults, get into the habit of just going from step one to 10 and just keep going next step, next step, next step without being able to look back and notice what we've achieved without being able to look back and ask ourselves, do we like the steps we're taking, the path we're doing? 
we very much need to start building in moments to pause and reflect so that we're not just going through the motions, not going quickly through the steps. When you go through the steps too quick, there's so much valuable information that you miss out on, lessons that you could learn, wonderful, happy moments you could have, but you're so hyper-focused on getting to the next step that you miss out on so many opportunities. So forcing yourself to stop, reflect, ask yourself some questions, just simple ones like, how do you feel about the current situation? Do you like it? Do you want to do something different? And if you don't have an answer, then don't move on to the next step until you've given yourself some time to really come up with an answer. So what if people want really big changes? Let's say, for example, they've just come out of a relationship. They want a whole new life because, you know, it was pretty painful. And they want to make a lot of changes. And they sort of want to make them pretty quickly because, you know, life's too short to be miserable. So we've been talking about small changes with people who are generally fairly satisfied with their lives. What if your life stinks and you really want to make big changes? Well, if your life stinks, which does happen, I would sit down and just start kind of like brainstorming, coming up with all the different ways that your life could be better. What are the different things that you have control over? So a list of actual things that you can have an impact on and change so that it's successful. and then. Again, even though your life stinks, making a huge change quickly generally doesn't stick and last. So I would ask myself or the person that I'm working with, well, what's the most important one? What's the priority to you right now that you feel you could be successful with and maintain that you would get the most of? But that might not be the thing that you want the most. So let's say I've just split up in a relationship. The thing I want most of all is a new relationship. And Mm -hmm. both of us know that if you've just split up with somebody, going after a new relationship straight away is not really a particularly good idea. So it might, the thing you want the most might not be the thing you set the intention of first and foremost. Right. Which why brainstorming is a good idea because you can get all that out. So put the big ones down. You're allowed to put down the fact I want a new partner. I want to move town. I want a new job. I hate my friends. I'm too heavy. You know, this is the reason I can't find a mate because, you know, and I've done a, I'm afraid to say I've done a dump of, you know, huge negativity. How do I get from that into something that is going to be an intention that I can actually do? If you are doing that brain dump and it's all negative and you are just sitting there and not able to come up with, the positive aspects of what's on that list, the positive possibilities, this is a moment to recognize that this might be an area that you need to ask for support in. Because not everybody can do this by themselves. And so sometimes you need that non-judgmental, not biased opinion of a coach, a therapist, a mentor, someone who can look at the list through different eyes and different perspectives. So that's what I would do first. If you're sitting there and you're just stuck in the spiral of negativity, I would go, okay, I need to pause and I need somebody's support in this moment. 
Now, if you don't need support and you're able to go and go through all those negative steps, ask yourself, okay, what are the themes that I'm hearing? Where are the areas that I have control over that I can have an impact on? And also looking at this list, is this a person who's screaming, yes, let's date? Would I want to date the person on that list? And most likely you're going to say no, because you're going to be like, this person doesn't like themselves. Why would I want to date someone who doesn't like themselves? And that's where my intentions now need to start coming from that perspective. So if my, I, I need to like myself more, that's also a huge topic. How am I going to break that down into something that I can actually do, you know, I don't know, this week, this month? Again, I would start always with something small that you can be successful with. So if you have always felt that you love your hair or you love your beard or you love how funny you are, then you want to set the intention of noticing how often you're having these positive thoughts about yourself, how often other people are catching on to that to reinforce that there's these good things about you that you like. And so it's easier for you to catch up more, but it makes you be in the moment in a positive light and be in the moment about something positive about yourself. I always like to make it like a game. Like if I caught three positive things about myself today, can I catch four positive things and just keep building up? Mm, I like that because there's a, a certain part of me that's thinking, oh my God, you know, I've got to sit there and like myself all the time. But I love that sense of, yep, just look for three times you find something you like about yourself. You know, it might be how, how you, well you did that task mm -hmm. at work. And it might be, um, thank you very much for the compliment about my lovely beard, by the way. No um, it might be that somebody compliments you on something or you feel proud of something. So I love that idea of going for three things today and let's see if we can find four things tomorrow that you mm -hmm. like about yourself. So we're going to try and put some of this into action. I've got a letter that somebody's written to me and I think we need a bit of Erin's help with. So we'll be back in a moment to do that. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. You can participate in the program by writing into the program. We always like to hear your feedback and your thoughts, suggestions for guests, or you might even be like Erin and actually suggest yourself as a guest. That You can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com, and if you go to the section on podcasts, you'll find a participate in the show section. And this is the letter that a woman has written to me. How can I feel more at home in my skin? I like to think that I'm having a more healthy relationship with myself and accepting myself for who I am. It's one of the benefits of being 40 plus. But I can go to a party or for a night out with the girls and I still judge myself by how much attention I get, mostly from men, but also whether other women want to talk to me or not. 
it's stupid that I rate my acceptability on this scale by the opinions of strangers or acquaintances. But I come home and I can't stop myself from thinking, if I was younger, dot, dot, dot. If I was more toned, dot, dot, dot. If I had a better wardrobe, dot, dot, dot. If I was more confident, dot, dot, dot. It leaves me feeling dissatisfied and yucky inside. I know it's stupid, but I just can't help myself. We live in a looks-orientated society and there's no getting away from it. Help. (laughs) Well, first, I would want to give that person a hug because they call themselves stupid twice and that just breaks my heart. Do you know, I I just spotted that myself as well, stupid twice. Yes, that's just, oh, that's so sad. I want to give them a hug and tell them they're not stupid and that what they're feeling, this competitive and comparing to other people is natural. We all do it. But to stay stuck in that is unhealthy. And so I would start working with that person about, okay, well, what do you like about yourself? What are you proud of? What can we do to take some moments to be more in our body, in our senses, versus in our head, comparing ourselves to others? So force yourself in that moment with your girlfriends and you're having a, a maybe a nice glass of wine. Take a moment to appreciate the wine and the smell. Or maybe take a moment to appreciate the music you're hearing in the nightclub. Like little things first I would come up with as ways to get her out of her head in these good moments would be a good tool for her to be able to use. And then I'd want to have a conversation about how she feels about herself because she called herself stupid. And so you're not being very kind to yourself. And it sounds like you don't always like yourself. So we need to start working on that. So how do you deal with the the stupid part then? I would say, what does stupid mean to you? Are you using it as a way to put yourself down? Are you using it as a way to dismiss your feelings? What are you using the word stupid as a way to have this false sense of putting yourself down before the other person can? Why are we approaching it that way? I'd want to have a deeper conversation about what that word means and how she's using it and why she's using it. This sounds to my ears almost as a way to protect herself from somebody calling herself stupid. She'll do it first. Yes, I'm wondering who said that certain emotions were stupid. Exactly. Or who said that your emotions are stupid or that you should dismiss the way you're feeling. And so it would take those deeper conversations, which again is a wonderful place to reach out for some support. There are some conversations we can simply not do for ourselves in our head or by journaling. Having that interaction with other people, you can't replicate it. And it is so powerful and valuable. So body image, how do we get a better body image? Because that's there as well as thinking feelings are stupid. Mm -hmm. I would start, how can we twist it? And let's have a conversation about gratitude. What are the many different ways you are grateful to your body? What has it provided for you? Really force yourself to take that step back and ask yourself that question. Because not a lot of people think about how much their body has provided. How many times you've gotten sick and you've been able to get over your illness and be well. How many times have you sprained an ankle and been able to have your body repair it or broken a bone? 
you know, really sit there and contemplate all the different things that your body has done for you. It is very hard to be negative about the way you look if you're running through a list of a hundred different things that your body has provided for you. So I, I like to attack things with the positive. And I think going for things that are under your control. So mm. for example, you know, one of my goals is to be able to sit on my meditation cushion comfortably. I can get down on my knees and, you know, I'm flexible enough to get onto the floor and back up off the floor again. So what I'm aiming for is flexibility rather than actually what I look like so much. Absolutely. What is your body able to do for you? Isn't it awesome that your legs allow you to bend and move in a way that not everybody is able to do? Any other advice you'd like to give this lady? I would start trying to take moments of how can I be kinder to myself? Kindness moments. You know, how many negative thoughts did I have today? 10, 20, 30? How many positive did I have? Forcing yourself to look at two perspectives, the positive and the negative, sometimes will stop a person. I will also say, would you say this to your friend? Would you say this to a loved one? If you won't say these negative things to someone else, then that is a huge indicator that you should not be saying it to yourself in your own head. And if you're like, no, I would say that, then I would say, okay, say it out loud. Say it out loud to an animal, your pet. Maybe say it to your partner and see how they feel, how they react. Sometimes we need to see that that person would be very upset for you to be able to give yourself permission to go, oh yeah, that does hurt me. Sometimes we need to see that that reaction, the mere reaction. So what would a kindness moment look like? Kindness can be as simple as telling yourself it's okay when you make a mistake. I've done that a couple times in my head during this interview alone, where I've slipped up on my words and I've had to say them over again. And so in my head, I was like, that's okay. You know, there might be someone listening to this and is going to go, oh, I do this. I mess up my words. And yet they're on a podcast, so it must not be so bad. So I'm always trying to think about the positive impact I may have on others and not beating myself up about a little mistake, the benefit that can have to someone who struggles with speech the way that I do. So very much taking yourself out of just I, 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 and looking at that bigger picture can help you to be kinder to yourself. And small little things is, I'm going to have my, my favorite coffee today, simply because I deserve it. Rewarding yourself simply for being you. I'm going to go walk around the lake, my favorite thing to do, or listen to my favorite song, because I just deserve it for being me. Well, on the subject of you, thank you very much for being a guest on The Meaningful Life. And as a witness today on what makes life meaningful, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? My life is very meaningful because I find meaning in all these wonderful conversations I get to have. I get to meet so many unique people. I'm constantly going on podcasts and with my own clients in therapy and coaching groups having all these wonderful, interesting conversations where 
we're able to challenge each other and force each other into positive change. So I find meaning in the conversation, in the knowledge, in the growth, helping others see other perspectives, and then forcing myself to recognize where I need to grow and change and be uncomfortable. So unfortunately, that's almost all we have time for. If you would like to hear more of this conversation, you can join us in the bonus material. We're going to be talking about emotional eating and how to deal with it, because Erin has written a book called Curb Your Cravings. And so we'll be talking about that in a moment. And if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.